Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We might make a start. Uh, we're right on cue. So, if we haven't met, my name is Andrew Cameron. I'm the director here. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and their elders past and present. I'd simply like to begin with an advertisement, if I may, for our next event at St Mark's. Uh, on the 29th of September, we're having an all-day symposium, Pastoral and Spiritual Care Symposium, entitled Spiritual Care in a Secular Age, a symposium for practitioners and leaders in later life care. St Mark's has a very strong pedigree in the area of ageing and pastoral studies and uh, this symposium will include uh, several keynote speakers including Christine Bryden, author, writer, speaker and Alzheimer's and Dementia advocate and our very own Elizabeth, uh, Reverend Dr Elizabeth McKinley who is a professor in ageing and pastoral studies with Charles Sturt University. Bookings are essential so go to our website uh, to find out more about that. Here at St Mark's we also want to respond when the time comes to the report of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse due for release in early 2018 in ways that are compassionate and sensible and useful. Other churches are going to need to make their own responses to the commissioners. Just today, Justice McClelland indicated an issue over the confession of sins of child sexual abuse that will be re relevant in particular to the Roman Catholic Church with some overlap into Anglican practice. More to the point though for our denomination is that we know many Anglican organisational structures were not conducive to the hearing of the vulnerable and complicitly ignored Jesus' expectation never to, call, never to cause the downfall of little ones. The Anglican Church in Australia has been working on this matter at least since the General Synod of 2004 when it began to construct a national structure for sharing of information about offenders. The Doctrine Commission of the Anglican Church of Australia published some papers in 2008 in our very own St Mark's Review and there are copies of this freely available. Take one if you'd like to uh, read these papers uh, when you leave on, the, on my right here, your left. These papers included really very helpful and insightful ideas and, and comments about our church and its practices, although one, no, no one model of response emerges. And as I reread this just recently, I thought, while on the one hand there's so much of value that's said in these papers, on the other hand it remains a little daunting, rather very daunting, to work out how to put these into practice in a, uh, in a useful way. Since then, some progress has been made in several areas, but not enough, and the Commission will not be complimentary of our church when the final report is released. So it interested us to ask the very Reverend Professor Martin Percy to engage with the Royal Commission with fresh eyes. We can sometimes get a little too close to thinking about things to know what to do next, but Reverend Dr Percy has been described in the journal Theology as the British theologian closest to being a missionary anthropologist. And these are the kinds of eyes I believe that we need. Martin is the Dean of Christ Church, Oxford, one of the University of Oxford's largest colleges, as well as being Dean of the Cathedral Church of the Diocese of Oxford. He writes and teaches on modern ecclesiology, and as well as being a member of the Faculty of Theology, and religion at the University of Oxford. 
is a tutor for the Said Business School. He's also a professor of theological education at King's College London. He's a professor, professorial research fellow at Haythrop College, University of London, and visiting professor at the Centre for the Study of Values at the University of Winchester. From 2004 to 2014, he was the principal of Ripon College at Cuddison. He's also held a number of roles in public life, serving as the director of the Advertising Standards Authority and as an adjudicator for the Portman Group, that's a self-regulating body for the alcoholic drinks industry. He served as a commissioner for the Direct Marketing Authority and as an advisor to the British Board of Film Classification. As you can see from that CV, this is a person who thinks and writes broadly, and I think that's the kind of mind we need to to hear from about what's before us. He also has, I'm told, the curious distinction of being the only living theologian to feature in Dan Brown's 2003 The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I'm sure we'd like to hear more about that. Martin and Emma, we'd like to welcome you to what I understand is your first visit to Australia. Thanks in anticipation, Martin, for the thought that you've given to this matter and for the time you've taken to join us. Please welcome Reverend Dr Percy as he addresses us with a lecture he's entitled Risk, Responsibility, and redemption, remembering our future. Thank you. Um, Andrew, you've walked off with two of my pages. Oh. Sorry, anyway. <laughs> so we're off, to, we're, we're off to a flying start here. Yeah. 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 I thought I might claim them afterwards. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Very good. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues, uh, very good to be uh, here with you and uh, delighted to be able to uh, take this uh, topic uh, this evening uh, to talk about uh, uh, child sexual abuse and the response of institutions uh, to that phenomenon, particularly the churches, which was the uh, brief that I uh, uh, accepted. I have to say, not with a huge amount of alacrity. Um, when uh, the note came through, I just thought, hmm, maybe... Um, but actually, uh, pausing for a moment, I just thought actually this would be a good thing to do and I was very mindful of a number of things uh, in the UK that I was involved with uh, already uh, roughly in this sphere and uh, mindful of your work as well at the moment with the Royal Commission uh, about to report. As Andrew's uh, very kindly said, um, I am uh, by uh, basically discipline somebody who works in the field of ecclesiology but with a very strong interest in the social sciences. So as you'll see with the approach I'm taking to this paper, um, I uh, use a very wide lens uh, in order to get into some detail which will come towards the end about what I think we might want to do and be as a church in the light of the common problems that we're facing, whether you're in Australia, the United Kingdom, or indeed many other parts of the developed world, uh, quite independent, as I say, of which denomination that is too. Um, I can say probably more about uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code later. Um, uh, it has no relevance at all this evening um, uh, whatsoever, uh, other than the fact, I guess, that uh, one of the things that uh, is uh, so extraordinary about that uh, book and uh, appearing in the book is that you get a lot of very strange mail, uh, even today, uh, from people that you really wish hadn't written to you. Uh, and it goes into that file that uh, all heads of colleges keep which is uh, to be reviewed later, usually after the 50-year rule or something like that anyway. Uh, it's good to be back in Canberra, good to be back here in St Mark's. Uh, I was last here, I think, in two, 
2014 or 13, and then before in 2009 as well. So it's very good to be back amongst you and uh, with colleagues as well who I see in other spheres. So, uh, a quote from Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let me read you, if I can, uh, a little extract from uh, an article from the Church Times from October last year. This relates, in fact, to the installation of our current Bishop of Oxford and two survivors of clerical abuse who felt that they had not been heard by him in his previous Episcopal role in Sheffield. So took the time and the trouble to come all the way down from South Yorkshire to be in Oxford and to uh, protest on the day of that installation. I'm just drawing directly from the Church Times report. Two survivors of clerical abuse have praised the Dean and Chapter of Christ Church Oxford for facilitating their protest at the consecration of Dr Stephen Croft as the Bishop of Oxford last Friday. You might ask what I've been doing. One of the protesters, known as Michael, has accused Dr Croft and others in the hierarchy of ignoring him when he told them he was raped by a priest in the Diocese of Bradford during the 1980s while he was a 16-year-old. He was joined by somebody else called Joe, who last year won an apology and damages for an assault by the former Chancellor of three dioceses, the Reverend Garth Moore, and for the Church's subsequent response. On Friday, the two handed out leaflets to those attending the consecration, and at one point they were brought a plate of sandwiches and given lunch and a water bowl for, uh, for the dog that they brought by the Dean and Chapter. The Dean, me, had invited the pair back to Oxford to discuss the issues around surrounding and the safeguarding and the reporting of abuse. Joe, one of those, went on. So not only was it a very effective protest, but it was graciously received and managed to create potential for good dialogue. Michael said after the protest that he was still angry with the Church of England that they had the nerve to enthrone bishops such as Dr Croft after safeguarding complaints had been made against them. It's immoral, he said. This is the absolute proof that the Church of England does not duly and truly recognise the profound and long-lasting impact of such abuse that it has on survivors. Well, apart from the lunch and the water bowl for the dog, does any of that sound familiar? Probably. But let me outline some of the issues as I see them. The first point I want to make is that the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse seems to me to be already, from what I have read of it, a very thorough, deep and wide-ranging investigation. Moreover, it's finely attuned to the profound pain of the victims. I wrote this lecture over a couple of days when I had trawled through a number of case studies and was particularly struck by Case Study 41 in your forthcoming report the abuse of a child with disabilities. The striking thing, as always, is the inability of the church to listen, to see, to feel. But the Royal Commission has already listened. It has seen, it has felt, and it's noticed those things that were hiding in plain sight for many years, 
It names them, it calls them out, and in that sense the Commission's work is already properly prophetic. The Royal Commission challenges the institutional narcolepsy that's beset churches and covered up sexual abuse over many decades and generations. The findings are already a wake-up call, a siren, a prescient pointer towards a future shaped by transparency and accountability. Even today, as Andrew's just remarked, uh, 85 recommendations have been aired today, uh, some of which are already, as it were, uh, putting the proverbial cat amongst the pigeons. The work of the Royal Commission is practical. It's an exercise in applied ethics. It does not leave the future to chance. It knows that no future is risk-free, but futures and freedoms are about mitigating risk, and that through remembering, through recollecting, we have a serious prospect of redemption. Forgetfulness is the enemy of justice. So, in a real sense, good remembrance is the friend of the future. And that's what the churches will need to remember. The incident I described a moment ago in Oxford from last year really happened, and I do, in all seriousness, have to say to you, I wonder even why, part of me at least wonders why, it's even reported in a newspaper. Why should it be? Because we showed hospitality to strangers, which the Gospel merely asks us to do. That we prayed for and with and were kind to those who merely threatened to disrupt a public act of worship. Because the Gospel expects an awful lot more of us than that and tells us to pray for and be good to those who would persecute us. The uh, footnote in this just simply expresses that what Michael and Joe wanted to do was stand up at the beginning of the service installing the bishop and lead the congregation in a public act of cleansing before the service got underway. I said that was probably not a very good idea. But I did offer to meet them, and I did offer to begin constructive dialogue with them, which is now ongoing. The Gospel commands us to care for our sisters and brothers and all humanity with hospitality and generosity, without motivation of personal or corporate gain. We're commanded to do this because God loves them and God loves a cheerful giver. So there's no other mandate other than to engage and talk and listen and give. I completely understand why it might be tempting to handle the potential threat of disrupting a bishop's installation in a completely different way. Legal counsel, I dare say, might say it's unwise to meet with or engage with the demonstrators lest this open up further opportunity for misunderstanding. One or two counselled me that it might invalidate insurance policies. Others counselled that it risks the communication and public relations strategy going wrong. Not sure what the one going right was doing, but never mind. <laughs> Suppose, they asked, that the encounter turns ugly and the media capture it all on camera. Some went further and suggested that by offering our food to strangers, there was a further health and safety risk on diet and allergies. <laughs> yep, I can think of many good reasons to hold back hospitality. But when I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, I don't encounter the following. The Samaritan fretting about his own personal accident or travel insurance by voluntarily taking on the liability of a stranger in distress. 
or of his bank intervening to say that they will not underwrite the cost of the hostel expenses that the stranger might run up, as he's not been pre-vetted as a signatory on the Samaritan's account. Or that the Samaritan, even for a second, wondering if the half-dead stranger he picks up at the roadside is part of an elaborate ruse or hoax designed to fleece the unwary of their possessions. Nope, I don't read that. I don't read of my namesake, St Martin, pausing as he cuts his cloak in two to give half to a beggar who is cold and starving to reflect on how his personal possession accidental damage waiver clause might now be invalid because he cut his own cloak. I don't read that either. He just cuts his cloak in two. Like the Samaritan, it is a pure and instinctual outpouring of compassion. It crosses boundaries. These gestures take deliberate risks, but they're not reckless acts. But they do expose one human's vulnerability to another human's vulnerability and need. But I would simply say, that is the gospel, isn't it? So I do understand today why we might be in our risk-aversive society, valuing diligence, prudence, policies and collective responsibility, counting the cost of reputational damage and corporate jeopardy. I understand the need for managers to help us assess such risks, enabling us to have efficient systems with good communications and public relations. I, of course, understand the need for child protection policies. But I don't think any of these things trump the need for the gospel to have the primary mandate in how we are ordered as a body, as the body of Christ in dealing with those who are hurt, bleeding, damaged, or abused. So, looking around the room, I expect most of you have seen the mother of all disaster movies. You will remember Towering Inferno from 1974, I suspect. A Hollywood blockbuster, the cast included Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Faye Dunaway, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughan, Robert Wagner, Richard Chamberlain, Jennifer Jones, and Fred Astaire. You don't remember him, do you? That's a pointless answer, by the way. <laughs> John Williams wrote the musical score. The plot was simple. An architect called Doug Roberts returns to San Francisco for the dedication of the glass tower, which he has designed for James Duncan. At 138 floors in the early 70s, it is the world's tallest building. But an electrical short starts an undetected fire on the 81st floor. Robert suspects the electrical engineer, Robert Simons, and also Duncan's son-in-law, of cutting corners and confronts him. During the dedication ceremony, the public relations chief turns on the tower's exterior lights. It's always the PR's fault, isn't it? The lighting overloads the electrical system, and the rest, as they say, is history. At the end of the movie... Duncan promises that such a tragic debacle will never happen again. Robert says he does not know what will become of the building, and maybe it should be left in its fire-damaged state. The casualty toll numbers 200. Steve McQueen, playing a rather gravelly fire chief officer, says they were all lucky. Roberts agrees to consult with the fire officials in future when such buildings are designed. And there the film ends. See, I've saved you a lot of trouble getting the DVD for that. <laughs> More recently, there's an episode of South Park, that rather anarchic American 
uh, cartoon that introduces us to a new superhero. That superhero is Hindsight Man. <laughs> now, Hindsight Man has a habit of turning up after disasters <laughs> and explaining how they might have been avoided. <laughs> Better health and safety management, for example. And he then flies off, soaring into the sky, his cape fluttering past the bemused witnesses. His contribution to disasters, the BP oil spill off the American coast, is to turn up after the event, explain exactly what went wrong, and urge us to be more careful next time. <laughs> Hindsight Man is, of course, an anti-superhero. And the point of all superheroes, as I would hope you agree, Spider-Man, Captain Scarlet, Batman, Superman, and Superwoman, the list is literally endless, is that they are supposed to avert disaster. They're not there to conduct the autopsy, but to prevent the deaths. I haven't got a footnote on this, but I would also just remind you, by the way, that actually when you look at the villains who oppose uh, the superheroes, it is extraordinary how many of them have doctorates. Have you noticed that? <laughs> uh, you might think, you know, actually, universities really ought to tighten up their sort of, uh, you know, their PhD access at this point. Anyway, never mind, but anyway. As so often with South Park, Hindsight Man mocks our culture at many levels. Do you want a messiah, a superhero, or a saviour? And if so, what kind? Or does exemplary management mean that you won't need a messiah or a superhero next time there is a crisis, because there won't be a crisis? Well, I mentioned Towering Inferno because on the day I was preparing this article, I, I couldn't help uh, but go back to that film. The UK felt silent for two minutes at 11am. We were remembering the victims of the fire in Grenfell Tower, London, with a loss of life exceeding 80 people. There will be a public inquiry, of course, but it's already clear that the disaster was caused in part by our old, old friend in post-capitalist developed worlds, deregulation. As one journalist commented, we don't yet know if building regulations were weakened or disregarded at Grenfell Tower, or if rules were obeyed, but wholly inadequate. We do know that coroners and experts calling for tougher safeguards were simply ignored by those who should have been listened to. With residents of another 4,000 tower blocks in the UK needing urgent reassurance, whatever national appetite for deregulation and risk management there might have been, has now gone. In common with other countries, we have seen in the UK a growing hostility to so-called red tape, which is deemed to hold back entrepreneurs, businesses and progress and interfere with the business of institutions. It has become fashionable to sneer at elf and safety, to laugh at European Union regulation or forms of inspectorate that put procedures and policies in place that cause us to pause. It was not that long ago that UK Prime Minister David Cameron pledged to, I quote, kill off the safety culture for good, with, I quote, another bonfire of red tape. Since 2010, a third of UK environmental health officers have gone. So food outlets are checked far less often, air quality stations are closed down, landfill sites are less protected. Our health and safety inspectorate 
has endured a near 50% cut in the space of eight years. In the construction industry, inspection rates have fallen fast. Just in the year 2015 to 16, in London and the southeast, where the skyline is thick with cranes and sky high prices for those apartments, inspections have fallen by an astonishing 26%. One of our more right wing newspapers, the Daily Telegraph, launched a Cut EU Red Tape campaign on the same day that Theresa May triggered Article 50, calling the UK out of the European Union, Brexit. One Tory minister promised to, quote, get rid of some of the burdensome regulation that has accreted over the last 44 years since, since Britain joined the EU. Another Tory minister promised to, I quote, whittle away the regulation burden with this intrusion into the daily life of citizens. Another Tory minister called for a massive regulatory cull. Another minister, who somehow missed, I think, post-irony and post-colonialism, said that regulations that were, I quote, good enough for India would be good enough for the UK <laughs> once EU regulations were gone. Here's the thing. Good governance and good government is made literally of red tape. It is actually the thread and fabric of civilization. There is more to governance than red tape, of course, but it is quite literally the ribbons that bind legal documents drawn up by yours and mine democratically elected representatives. Red tape is what binds us together as a society. Now, in saying this, I'm aware that I'm, of course, pointing to something that has been systematically unravelled. And in the case of the church, I think I'm probably dealing with something that has never been ravelled. <laughs> Red tape's not a bad thing. It is actually what protects our most vulnerable citizens. And it has a real and true and good value. Let me illustrate this a little more graphically, if I can. When I was uh, principal of uh, Ripon uh, College uh, at Cudston, uh, we used to, on average, take uh, one Roman Catholic student every year or two who would come uh, from the Roman Catholic Church, um, having been, of course, ordained already. They'd already served as deacons and priests, but they'd had enough of the church and uh, for various reasons, uh, sometimes to do with sexuality, sometimes to do with marriage, sometimes to do with something else, they um, uh, had decided to become um, Anglican ministers. Towards the end of my time at Cudston, I took on one student who was uh, somewhere into his mid to late 30s and had come through junior seminary as a Roman Catholic. He had joined an order before being ordained they'd been ordained a deacon and a priest. But at junior seminary, as a young teenager, he had been subject to regular sexual abuse by an older and more senior brother clergy. That priest, the abuser, had gone on to a good career in the church. The abused and younger priest eventually contacted his bishop to alert him to the problems with his now new senior colleague and former abuser. 
This was a diocese way up north in England. The bishop responded to this complaint quickly, simply by removing the license of the complainant and transferring him to another diocese without a safe to receive letter so he could no longer find work because of the lack of references. The abused priest, literally with no money and no means of making any money, returned home to his parents, now aged and in their 70s, who of course were puzzled to find their son priest turning up at the door, out of work, in a denomination that hasn't got enough priests. The priest decided to complain some more, formally to his bishop this time. The bishop would not meet him, but instead sent the designated safeguarding officer from the diocese to arrange a meeting. This turned out to be another priest and a friend of the bishop whom the complainant also knew. The complainant also knew that this designated safeguarding officer had absolutely no formal training in safeguarding whatsoever. He'd just been designated the safeguarding officer. Nowhere was deemed safe or welcoming to meet in the diocese. They couldn't meet in the complainant's home where his parents live. So the interview was conducted in a motorway service station over a coffee with the public milling around. The abused priest decided he'd had enough and went to police. The abuser was arrested, tried, sentenced and imprisoned. The church would still not relicense the abused priest, so after two or three years of kicking his heels around at home, he contacted his local Anglican bishop. And he now serves as a, as a parish priest, something he always wanted to do, but it has to be said, not in a denomination that he started with. The reason red tape is good is because it helps others to stop abusing others. It stops employers maltreating employees or polluting the environment. It prevents rogue businesses undercutting good businesses. It keeps us safe. It protects children and vulnerable adults. It guarantees the food we eat and its quality. It safeguards the medicines we take. It safeguards professional standards of lawyers, doctors, and much else besides. Engineering, buildings, built environment. We literally rely on red tape for most of what we take for granted. It was inadequate safety nets and red tape, the lack of it, that in the end did for the Grenfell victims, just as was prophesied in that extraordinary film, Towering Inferno, from 40 years ago. It's probably, therefore, if you follow the logic of this, the lack of ravelling of red tape, the sheer absence of it in the church, that has led us to the point where a royal commission into institutional responses to sexual abuse is needed. It's not that there's been a huge amount of infrastructure in place that's been disregarded or cut back. It's mostly the case it's just not been there and needs to be put in place. One journalist puts it like this. In all aspects of the working of the state, we might add the church, 
It takes eternal vigilance to stop officious or inept regulation. Human devices are prone to human fallibility. But red tape, adds the journalist, is the history of progress. From factory acts keeping children out of mills, mines and chimneys, to the limiting of work hours and the granting of holidays, sick pay and parental leave. Much will change in the aftermath of the UK's Grenfell disaster, the UK's very own towering inferno. And I'm sure much will change here with the Royal Commission's report into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. So what then of remembering our future? It's a curious phrase, isn't it? Remembering our future. I use the word remember here in two senses. Firstly, to put back together, to remember. And secondly, to retrieve and recollect. The idea that good may come out of evil and that self-sacrifice can bring liberation are two of the basic paradoxes that lie at the heart of many religions. But there's more to remembering than mere recollection. We don't recall events merely to test our memory. The function of memory is much richer. It's something in our processing, our mulling, sifting and discerning of events that makes memories richer, not vaguer as they get older. It's easy to recall things, but memories are what we hold, value and discern. And as we recall them, we grow in wisdom, those memories gain more significance and we find new and richer ways of actually recollecting. Of course, we live in an age of cultural amnesia. It's no different in the church. The fact that the church lives in difficult times is not the problem, says the Dutch missiology Herbert Kramer. The fact that the church constantly forgets the church has always lived in difficult times, that's the problem. And that's why remembering is so vital for our time. But remembrance is not merely fond or regretful recollection. It's a deeper mystery in which the past, present and future become bound up together. Remembering is at the heart of the gospel. Do this in remembrance of me are amongst the last words Jesus utters to his disciples. And Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom are amongst the last words addressed to Jesus on the cross. When we remember, we of course still love, we still see those, we still cherish those whom we love and yet see no longer. Remembering is not really, or not merely making sure we don't forget. It is rather the opposite of dismembering. To dismember is to take apart. It's a destructive act, pulling apart something that should be held together. But when we remember, we put something together again that was once a whole and comes together in a different way. So when the thief says to Jesus on the cross, remember me, he's not really trying to say to Jesus, look, I'm jogging your memory about the future. He's saying something else, remake me recreate me. These things go together. To be remembered as a church or as a body 
is something that we should seek and actively hope for. In the United Kingdom, we've witnessed a series of disturbing revelations relating to the sexual abuse of minors and vulnerable adults at the hands of media celebrities, prominent figures in public life, and of course the churches. There are many conspicuous examples, I suppose for those living in the UK or familiar with UK history, Sir Jimmy Savile is probably, I suppose, the most egregious reminder of how cultures of sexual abuse can hide in plain sight for many, many years, indeed decades. It's a kind of Makita phenomenon, as anthropologists sometimes term it. What everybody knows, but nobody says. In the week that I drafted this lecture, fresh revelations about Cardinal Pell surfaced. Meanwhile, back in the UK, we still await the review of Lord Carlisle on the case of Bishop George Bell. And we need to remember also those who were accused long after they have lived, so cannot answer to restore their reputation. The scandal of the church is not only the cover-ups with those correctly accused. We also have to address our treatment of those who are falsely accused and who can sometimes be treated worse, as though they were criminals, even though the courts have determined otherwise. But there can be no excuses for power silencing truth and the asphyxiation of valid testimonies. The recent report by Dame Moira Gibbs on the crimes of Bishop Peter Ball, former Bishop of Gloucester, published just in June 2017, points out the following. When Peter Ball was first a priest and then a bishop, homosexuality was the subject of clear legal and religious prescription. There was also a higher and more overt level of societal, uh, societal prejudice against homosexuality than there is today. For clerics and the faithful, these religious, legal and social pressures served to reinforce a strong taboo. It was extremely difficult for those such as Ball's victims to speak openly to family members, others in the church or others in authority about their experiences and concerns. They had good cause to fear legal action, social ostracization, and damage to their careers. Ironically, this gave Ball confidence that his victims would remain silent about their experiences. The taboo may have contributed to what appears to be his own denial and self-deceit. Gibbs continues, There was in some parts of the church an inexperience and naivety in relation to homosexuality, certainly during the early years under review. Ball successfully conflated abusive sexual activity with practices which were towards the margins of intense spirituality. There was also a trivialization in the church of the nature and consequences of conduct which was known to be wrong. For example, Roy Cotton was ordained despite having acknowledged conviction for the sexual abuse of a boy, while for the same matter and in the same era, he has been permanently excluded from the scouting movement. That overall context of confusion and denial contributed to the inadequacy of the church's response to Ball's misconduct. It promoted a view that a person of Ball's religious stature was incapable of truly abusive behavior, 
So the accusations against him must be misguided or malicious. The issue continues to be a source of division and debate in the church and an important concern for some of Ball's victims. We, this is Gibbs speaking, would simply emphasise that the church must promote an open and accepting culture in which everyone, regardless of their sexuality or their views about homosexuality, is clear about their responsibilities to those who might be abused or who might want to raise concerns about that abuse. The Ball case in the United Kingdom highlighted a nexus of very real problems for the church and its victims. In no particular order, we were too willing to defer to the power and authority of bishops, those who were abusers, often because we perceived them to hold all the ace cards, mystique, preferment, wider bases of knowledge. We perhaps trusted their assertions far more than is usually wise. In the absence of arguments and evidence from Episcopal lips, assurances and assertions from bishops still carry too much weight. We assume bishops to be almost omniscient, yet there must be significant doubts in some fields about their competences in areas that they've had little, if any, professional training in. Bishops, because they are bishops, often retain positions of oversight in fields they simply don't comprehend. Education sometimes, safeguarding, public policy to name but a few. Yet they feel the need to defend their comprehensiveness and role in oversight, even when it is manifestly the case that they're out of their depth or just sometimes plain wrong. All too often, exposure of any weakness, failure or wrongdoing is met with, guess what, more defensive assertions and reassertions. They keep digging themselves into deeper trenches in order to defend themselves. In all of this, of course, we're left with a culture that's unable to police itself, unable to be honest about the grounds and circumstances which have created abuse, unable to sift and discern the cries and pleas of witnesses and complainants. There are gender things running here too. But let me say a few things, if I can, by way of conclusion. First, let's remember where risk and responsibility come from. The word responsibility comes from the Latin term respondere, meaning to be answerable to and to respond. The word evolved to mean being accountable for one's actions and reliable and trustworthy. Moreover, the word obligation is the Latin root word. Risk, in contrast, means to run into danger. So we might say there's no such thing as a responsible risk with the most vulnerable. To be responsible means to be risk aversive. It means to avoid taking chances wherever possible. Second, repentance means turning away from practices, habits and sins. Not 360 degrees, because that would bring you back on yourself to where you started from. It's a full turning away, a setting aside of all that inhibits. It's making a conscious and determined decision of body, mind and heart and spirit 
to not repeat the past. Repentance is what the churches are called to be in relation to abuse. Apologies will not be enough. Neither is contrition. Repentance is the way forward. Sorrow for the past. Determination to embrace a new future and to create that. Third, there has to be more listening. Good leadership is grounded in generosity of spirit and it extends to learning from failure and pain in profound spiritual attentiveness. There is a serious theological issue bubbling away in all of this. Listening is paying deep attention to what is going on around us. It's a kind of spiritual and intuitive intelligence which only arises as the mind is in communion with stillness and attentiveness. Only then can one hear the low, muffled cries of the afflicted and see what has been hiding in plain sight for quite a while. Fourthly, the body of Christ is richly incarnate and Christ in his healing ministry usually heard the unheard, saw the unseen, spoke to the silenced, could feel the unfelt. That body had a keen sense for the abused and the marginalised and often placed such people at the very heart of communities. Jesus' healing ministry was not just physical, but often social, political and a matter of justice. And we are often called to do this in our own healing and deliverance today. Fifth, I have no doubt that the road ahead for churches will be hard. It's one of repentance, rebuilding and remembering. And if we want to build that future, it will be hard work. The poet Heather Penkevel, in her poem Road Building, based on the call to make way uttered by John the Baptist in Luke 3, 1-6, says this. Road building is rough work. Hard labour, muscles strained, hands calloused, back near breaking, even with lifting gear. Hard hat, protective boots. Sight clearance is dirty work and dangerous. Removing rotten structures, risking unsafe ground, uncovering long-forgotten corruption, the stink too strong to breathe of waste and dereliction. God, you cry out to us to clear the sight, to build the road because you are coming, and you will come along the road we build. Give your people, we pray, the will and the stamina for the job. Give us the courage to tackle the clearance of debt and exploitation which corrupt communities and nations. Give us the grit and determination to straighten out the crooked structures which make it hard for the poor and the weak to journey to freedom. And help us to shout aloud that you will come along the road we build. We, in all of this, need to change the culture of the church. So history does not repeat itself. So there is no new Grenfell Tower or towering inferno. So there is no other Peter Ball case. So the kinds of things that will be served up when the Royal Commission reports late this year and early next year will simply not 
happen again. A pattern of abuse relies on defensive assertions and cover-ups as much as it does on deceit and criminality. And it is for this reason that I would like to see the Church of England, all churches actually, hand over child protection and safeguarding matters to a single independent authority. Not an authority it controls, but rather one that it would be subject to. This is perfectly normal in public life. The press, advertising, television, energy companies, financial services, amongst others, are all regulated by bodies in the interests of ensuring fair and transparent public service and basic ethical standards. There is a close, some would say embedded, some would say incestuous relationship at the moment between the insurers of the churches, at least in England, and the church leaders who have a role in governing and overseeing the insurance companies. So bishops and others are often compromised on areas of liability, apology and payout to victim. Those same bishops cannot be pastors to victims and directors or financial beneficiaries of the insurance companies that may pay out on the claims. These spheres and functions need firmly separating. <coughs> In much the way that advertisers pay a levy to the Advertising Standards Authority, a body of which I was a director and council member for several years. This meant that any member of the public, 25,000 would write in every year, could complain cleanly, plainly, and with a clear conscience about any advert that they felt was misleading, untruthful, indecent, or just plain wrong. Anything they felt was offensive could be censured. More often than not, they were written back to and told that what they were complaining about did not breach any code, that actually everything was fine. The authority was a big body but it gives the public confidence that advertising is subject to a higher authority. And it seems to me that the churches, if they wish to be public bodies, need to be subject to some kind of public authority. The authority that governed advertising and governs finance, energy and other spheres is independent of the industry, but at the same time funded by it. We probably now need a similar regulator for all churches, so we no longer do it for ourselves. It's quite clear to me we can't manage the burden of this anymore, morally, financially or responsibly. Church is a sacred space, it's also a public space, but it is not a private self-policing sect. So, may Almighty God give us the grace and wisdom to make these rough places smooth, the barren places spring to life, the crooked paths straight, and in so doing, may we redeem the time, the church, and those whom we've lost or put in harm's way. May Almighty God give us the grace to listen, repent, and resolve to work for a kingdom of righteousness and compassion that works for all of humanity. Thank you.
you grab a seat just for a few minutes until we uh, uh, open it up for questions. Uh, I thought I might take the liberty of making a short response if I may. I was struck by so many things that you said and I really very much appreciate your think beginning to help us think this through. I was really struck by some of your opening phrases. Institutional narcolepsy, I think, uh, sums up what sadly we've lived through. The, forgive the forgetfulness is the enemy of justice and that justice will start with good remembering and the gospel as having our primary as being our primary mandate for meeting the hurting and abused and I think having said that it really helped me to understand the place of um, what you were calling red tape that on the one hand red tape at its best is a form of stranger care really I found myself thinking this is what exists in our society to love strangers and there are resonances in what you said with the Commissioner's preliminary finding that uh, church organisational structures have been terribly incompetent and unable to affect stranger care. At the same time you highlighted for us in the example from your own life about the use of insurance and health and safety clauses to somehow distance others, the bureaucratisation of care to become a kind of pseudo care. Uh, and the worst aspects of managerialism as a form of hiding, as something to hide behind so that we don't have to uh, actually care. There's something in what you've said about a proper form of management that serves fearless gospel leadership in contrast to our practice of using clergy to lead in areas in which we know little. Uh, reminded me of our beginning attempts here at St Mark's to reimagine ministry formation and training to try and meet some of those deficiencies. I think we're all going to remember hindsight man. Um, and it did make me think, and, and your use of that term, the Makita phenomenon, it made me think what, what would be entailed to find the moral forgetfulnesses that are hidden in plain sight among us now. Uh, but perhaps responding well to this one will teach us to respond well to other ones. That remembering is a form of remembering and discerning retrieval and that these are both the stuff of wisdom is really a marvellous place to start in thinking through our responses. And it reminds me of, uh, some have heard me talk about this, but there's a very interesting book by one Katerina von Kellenbach called The Mark of Cain, Guilt and Denial in the Post-War Lives of Nazi Perpetrators. So as in the same way that Cain killed his brother, then wandered in a wilderness under God's protection and eventually had a family and built a city. Von Kellenbach sees this as a journey of moral reintegration for Cain. She thinks it was the same for Germans who took a long time to properly remember their complicity in the Nazi atrocities. And something analogous, I think, applies in this case that you touched on it towards the end. It is a journey of moral reintegration ahead of us and a long one. And that's okay. There's nothing. Uh, it, it's daunting at one level, but it's okay to envision that moral reintegration that starts with proper knowledge, that includes ongoing repentance, that engages in a kind of listening understood by you as a sort of a spiritual discipline. I found that very helpful. A practice of incarnational inclusion that you summed up so nicely I couldn't catch it, but I'm going to go back over and see how you describe that, because uh, that can be a phrase that's uh, nice sounding, but doesn't mean a lot, but you made it have gravitas and groundedness that I think we can practice. And then a kind of road building that is hard work. That sounds to me like a long-term journey 
of moral integration, moral reintegration, and something that is in fact doable and thinkable. And the suggestion that we hand ourselves over to an external public regulatory authority is very interesting and worth close examination by us, I think. I was really encouraged by your comment that I found written by you in another context that it is no good cursing the darkness, so why not strike a match instead? <laughs> uh, and I think you've struck a match for us tonight. Thank you so much. I might just uh, paraphrase that for the sake of our recording, if that's all right. So uh, just the comment that you were, you started with uh, an external view rather than a sort of an internalised um, defensive view. What will it look like for an organisation like the church to, uh, to, in to inhabit that more fulsomely, I guess, is the um, gist of the question. Thanks. Mm, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really grateful for the question. Um, and um, it, I mean, there is a very long answer to the question, but I'll, I'll do... Um, <laughs> I'll do my best with a slightly shorter answer, if I may. Uh, the first thing I think to say is that um, one, one's got to see, um, one's got to have some self-understanding, I guess, about where the church uh, has arrived at over a long process of uh, gestation and evolution, say over 100, 150 years. And I would describe some of that as the church moving from being a, a very large, broad but largely voluntary amateur institution in which we're just, just rolled along with you know, virtues and values, but has become steadily more organisational and bureaucratic, but without any of the investment and checks that have pushed other institutions along in the same kind of way. I'm thinking of one book in particular here, uh, Kenneth Thompson's book uh, on the history of bureaucracy in the Church of England, which is not half as dull as it sounds, actually. It's, it's, it's uh, really quite an interesting book. Um, but it makes the point that actually the, the smaller and more marginal churches become, the more likely it is that they become bureaucratic, managerial, sectarian, but not in ways that are actually terribly effective. It's just that they can't see it. And uh, because it's still made up of the same volunteers uh, that were trying to run the big show to 250 years ago. So that's, that's part of what's going on here. And uh, this is where the church often gets caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, sometimes trying to be something that it probably can't be, which is an organisation. It, it, it's got to actually find a slightly different identity for, uh, than that in the modern world if it wants to be a public body that's largely run uh, and filled with volunteers. That's one thing. The second thing, I think, is um, perhaps a little bit more imaginative theologically in some ways. And that is to say, uh, we need a different set of lenses to look at the church uh, you know, through, through the eyes of Jesus and what I would term in a rather sort of retro 1960s uh, turn of phrase, the Kingdom of God project. And ask ourselves really honestly and truthfully, what do we think we're about defending here? I'm always uh, mindful of those, uh, that wonderful phrase of John Robinson, again from the 1960, uh, 1960s. All the church was ever meant to be was the construction hut on God's building site, which is the world. Now, just in a sense, that phrase alone tells you that actually something's gone a bit wrong, because we think we are the building. 
and we think we're living in the building, and we're trying to get the world into the building. But in Robin, uh, Robinson's rather sort of genius phrase, he's saying, no, 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 that the project, the Kingdom of God project, is the world. And actually, we're just in the temporary works cabin with high-vis jackets and hard hats, trying to build the kingdom on the ground, which may or may not involve some physical church buildings, depending, really. Let's remember, too, you know, Jesus is not a synagogue planter. Um, you, know, not, 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 you know, not a grower of synagogue congregations. Somehow, at the moment, we seem to be locked into uh, the most terrible institutional narcolepsy, where we just imagine the whole thing depends on keeping the institution up and running. Does it? I mean, where do you get that from in the Gospels? Now, I don't deny, of course I don't deny, the importance of institutions and the importance of churches and the heritage and all the other good things that flow from churches, you know, food banks, credit unions, organisation, red tape, etc. All good things. But there's something here about rebalancing this. And I do think that when you actually look at um, something as serious, certainly in the Church of England, as what's happened over the child sexual abuse uh, issues, we've seen far too much attention given towards the defence of the institution at the expense of the work of the Kingdom of God. We've forgotten that we're just a constructor's hut. And, you know, I sometimes look at, you know, we, we, we've got other examples, haven't we, in Canada, where actually to reboot, to completely re-establish ministry in some areas, some of those dioceses just went bankrupt. You know, it was necessary, in a sense, for them just to clear everything out. Say, actually, if we've got a future, we have to start with nothing. I'm not advocating that. <laughs> I'm simply saying that sometimes what we have is actually not worth keeping if the price of keeping it is to have nobody in the end who wants anything that we've got. And we're somewhere on that equation at the moment. And that's why I think the gift of, and I do think it's a gift, the gift of turning to society and saying, we need your help. You know, we think we can bring some valuable and beautiful things to contribute to the shaping of society. But this work, which is complex psychologically, pastorally, legally, socially, morally, professionally and organisationally, is something that we were never set up to manage ourselves. Help us to do this and regulate us. To become publicly accountable is not a crime, it's not an abrogation of responsibility, it's a recognition of mutuality and it's an invitation to get into a different relationship of synergy with wider society. But I can see all kinds of twitchiness about authority and power, reluctant to let all this stuff go. But I don't have the confidence in the power and the authority to make me think it'll be much better in ten years' time. So I'd let it go. There's a, another one of your countrymen, Michael Schluter, who um, talks about how Christians tend to operate in a realm of you know, personal one-on-one -on -one relationships and then they'll leap to lawmaking, forgetting that there's culture and, and uh, institutional kind of norms that are something that we can very productively work on. So Clive's asked a question, what can you comment about the need for, is it cultural and institutional renovation, Clive, that you're interested in? And, and particularly in? the issue of leadership. 
Yeah, okay, yeah. So what does this entail for, for our leaders? Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I'm really grateful for the question because you probably have picked up that in the early example I gave where I was dealing in a sense with the, the, the two complainants and protesters uh, at Tom Gate in Christchurch in Oxford. Um, I, you know, I'm clearly somebody at this point who has rather cut through red tape. Um, I mean, I've just done something that I regard as normal, instinctual, compassionate, sensible, and I have to say relatively intelligent. Um, the, uh, uh, all the counsel that we got uh, from elsewhere in the diocese was not to do this uh, and, and, and to follow the rule book. Well, uh, as far as I can see, if we did follow the rule book at this point, all we would get was um, uh, an even bigger protest um, and, and no further forward either. You know, it would simply, in a sense, deepen the chasm between the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the victims, the protesters and the abusers and those they wanted to complain about. So the idea really was, was to open up a dialogue, but first and foremost, to say something very positive to the protesters, that actually I, thought, I felt there was a way of protesting, um, you know, in, in, in a way that was constructive. And, and that was what we met to talk about. How, how could that be done? And, you know, in a sense, the, the food and the sandwiches that flowed from that were, were, were just a side issue, actually, but, but quite an interesting one. So on the one hand, there's, 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 a wisdom about, um, there's a wisdom about knowing when to deal with the red tape, and there's a wisdom also knowing that actually red tape can't just be cut through and then discarded. It, it, it has to be put back together again, and procedures do have to be followed, and they have to be followed in, in, in ways that are good and constructive as well. I think in a culture that's, uh, at the moment for us, certainly in the UK, one where you know, de deregulation is highly prized. Uh, this, this is a rather dangerous time, it seems to me. Um, but the Church of England, certainly, is coming to this whole issue in a place, I think, where it's not so much the unravelling, it, it's, it's just that they've never really ravelled. We're playing catch-up all the time, and we're now finding cases where actually we haven't even got procedures in place, never have had, that actually handle these things altogether. So it's, it's complex for us, I think, um, and I'm not, quite sure, um, I'm not quite sure how to develop it in the future, really. I think, other than I say, I think to, to move forward with some other kind of third voice in this that would give us a different kind of authority in it. I hope that's helpful. I think there's probably more to say. Yeah. I won't try and repeat that, but I will say, Scott's written about this in the blue volume over there, really, really helpful and interesting article. That's uh, a, a very rich question, uh, and, and I'm sure, um, I mean, in, 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 this, in, the, in the longer version of this text, uh, there are a couple of paragraphs here that uh, talk about how uh, both uh, bookends of the church, Anglo-Catholicism and conservative evangelicalism, have somehow managed uh, to use child sexual abuse uh, as a further tool uh, of, of leverage over and against uh, liberal culture. So it's been, in a sense, uh, taken and refracted and pushed somewhere else. And the surprising thing about that, perhaps the shocking thing about that, is that at either end of those bookends in conservative evangelicalism and Anglo-Catholicism, the cultures of denial about abuse 
um, have not been confronted at all. They've simply not been allowed to surface. So we've had to deal, in, for example, in the Church of England with the, uh, the John Smith case, who, um, uh, if you didn't follow this, uh, through the Ewan Minster camps, which were for uh, young boys from uh, only a very tiny number of elite public schools. I do mean a very tiny number, uh, up to about half a dozen, by invitation only. And for many, many years, this individual who ran these camps uh, would take just a number of these boys away and subject them to some really horrible beatings, um, naked, uh, for their spiritual edification. Uh, there is no evidence that uh, anything else took place other than this, but uh, a number of these boys complained that the beatings were so severe that they bled, and they have been uh, traumatised for life uh, because of these things, because it all came with a very hard, upright, conservative, evangelical, take it on the chin, stiff upper lip type ethos, really. It's been extremely hard to get any um, dialogue going about that in the Church of England because we have a number of conservative evangelical bishops who themselves are subject to these things and uh, a, number, a, a large number of conservative evangelicals who simply don't want to talk about any activity like that having taken place on these human camps that they regard as being spiritually regenerative for the whole of the Church of England by virtue of the leadership they have produced. Though it's extremely painful. Exactly the same could be said on the Anglo-Catholic side about a range of uh, institutions, bodies, uh, and subsequent practices. Uh, if you read uh, Dame Moira Gibbs' report on Peter Ball, um, it, it is just shocking uh, and unbelievable what he was able to get away with uh, over a long, long period of time. What the report uh, sort of does, this is Moira Gibbs' report, is it begins to put two and two together, uh, but just begins to do it, and, and sort of hints at it really, and says actually there's something very odd here about the, the incomprehension of conservative evangelicals towards Anglo-Catholics. And both cultures actually share some common DNA in terms of comparative misogyny. They're fearful of women, fearful of their voices, fearful of their intuitions, certainly fearful of them in leadership, fearful when they raise their voices about potential abuses. And both of those bookends have um, a strong desire to keep women in their place. And uh, the conservative evangelicals in particular, when they look at the Anglo-Catholics, see asceticism, mystique, spirituality, aesthetics, and lots of things that they're not going to actually get themselves, but think are valuable for the church. All of which produces this rather sort of vortex effect that says, well, everything else that's going on, that's going wrong, is somehow the fault of the broad centre, which we know to be the liberals. <laughs> In actual fact, the really odd thing about this is actually on balance, it is the Liberals who've actually raised their voices and who've actually, in the end, been the ones who've actually come up and said, look, actually, there's a lot of this stuff going on and, you know, we need to call it out. 
So uh, I'm, you know, mindful of Muriel Porter's um, uh, book on scapegoating, and uh, which, which may form part of your question. And to say, I think this requires a really honest um, conversation in the church about the edges, shadows, crevices that this kind of abuse can survive in in the church, and why. And it's got something on the Anglo-Catholic side to do with. Uh, the sacralizing of ambiguity, and you know, I mean, Pickering's work on Anglo-Catholicism in 1989, you know, says as much really. That, you know, by with a culture that says Father knows best, all sorts of things are possible, and have been. And the culture on the other side in conservative evangelicalism, which is a different kind of thing, but basically it's not the Bible that rules, is it? It's the interpreter, always. Um, is another way of actually pushing all the problems and the pathologies somewhere into the middle. So I think there's some denial and blocking going on here, and some splitting. And I think it's gender-related too. Just on that, there's, uh, again, in, in this um, series of papers, there's a really helpful piece from Muriel, who you mentioned, uh, about uh, how the voice and outlook of women uh, hasn't you know, been hurt, and I actually found it quite personally helpful. Yeah, thanks. Such a great question, Simon. I really think that's um, really at the heart of a lot of this, isn't it? This interaction between power, um, which is kind of morally neutral, isn't it? It can go either way. Power, power and hierarchy versus the, the community that we're called to. Um, You'll be speaking on this tomorrow over, <laughs> over the way, aren't you? Um, uh, for those who can't be at our Scholars Seminar tomorrow, uh, two-minute summary. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, as Andrew's uh, helpfully indicated, power is um, probably something that most people regarding study power, uh, you know, morally neutral. It's a, it can be inert, it can be active. Uh, uh, authority is really what you do with it. Um, and it, it, it's, it's how you discharge the power. Uh, it ought to be perfectly possible for these things to live together in uh, a good relationship. Uh, we certainly sniff out these things when they don't work like that, when uh, authority uh, takes power and abuses it, uses it for abuse. Uh, the heart of this, I think, for me, is uh, to take that word authority and say actually it's it's linked again eto etymologically to um, another word that we probably ought to use a little bit more than we do uh, authenticity that uh, the naming of authority and and the owning and the understanding of authority needs to be something that's utterly authentic uh, that means knowing what the weaknesses are knowing what the limits are and limits and weaknesses are not the same it's perfectly possible to have good authority uh, with limits, which implies no weakness. It simply says, this is as far as my authority goes. I think we all live like that, don't we? Um, we certainly all drive like that. Um, and, you know, there's no problem with that at all, it seems to me. The difficulty I think we're dealing with here in uh, the churches <coughs> is that, uh, you know, we've got very strong theological constructions of reality which signal, unfortunately, uh, lots of things to do with conflation 
and unlimited power and unlimited authority. Or authority and power that becomes too conflated with uh, the identity of God. So omnipotence, omniscience and omnipresence. This, I think, in the end is, is, is why church hierarchies will be so reluctant to uh, secede power and authority to an external body to enable them to get on with the business of being spiritual spaces, ministers of the gospel, truly in touch with mission, doing all the things that they're really good at. Because I think they'll think they're being robbed and limited. Actually, it's just not the case. It, it's, it's, it's about institutions becoming more humble, admitting to the scale of what they are, seeing that they are not God, that they are the constructor's hut, not the building, and that actually what is being built is not the church, but the kingdom of God, of which churches may just be a part of that. And once you get that lens in place, it then becomes possible, I think, at that juncture, to say, well, look, this is our reaction and our relationship, if you like, to red tape. You know, 99% of the time is going to be absolutely what we need to do and what we need to follow if we want to be public bodies, publicly accountable, publicly serving the public. Our trouble comes when we think the red tape doesn't apply to us, or we don't need it, or we have it, but we somehow think it's clever to, to just skirt round it, really. Picking up that earlier question, which I only half answered, one of my very, very earliest memories of being um, uh, on a parochial church council when I was uh, still a teenager, so the young person's representative, uh, in a very smart neighbourhood outside London, about uh, 25 miles outside, full of bankers and heads of insurance um, and all sorts. And um, there was a debate about this, people said that was a really good idea, and then of course there was a debate about pay and hours. And within 30 seconds, the mood of the meeting changed. People said, well, if you just did this number of hours, you could avoid tax. And if you did that level of pay, you could avoid NI, national insurance. And if you did that level of pay, you could avoid pension. And if you worked those things out there, you could do this and this and this. It went minimalist, 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 all the way down. And it happened to be that the... Um, the man on the PCC, a man called Nigel Sylvester, who by a long chalk earned the lowest salary uh, on that PCC, apart from me, I suspect, um, just said after about 10 minutes of this discussion, which was all really just a, a contest about who could actually get it down to the lowest cost possible, he said, um, am I really listening, he said, to a parochial church council having a discussion about how to avoid tax avoid national insurance, avoid pension liabilities, and avoid other employment contractual obligations. And you could have heard a pin drop. But it was quite clear that this is what these men did all day. And they just didn't see why they couldn't do it here, in church. Now that's the wrong way to deal with your red tape. And that's why we need a serious discussion about why red tape is good for us. I'm, I'm no great friend of red tape, I won't deny that. 
but I recognise that for the running of complex and publicly accountable institutions, it's utterly essential for public confidence and for the employees and for all the people we serve. And that's why we have processes. And what we're dealing with here at the moment is a church, as I say, who hasn't unravelled from that and hasn't cut it uh, out, is never actually got there. And that's what we're going to be called out on in the end. And the question is, is do we have enough resources and infrastructure to do the red tape? I really doubt it. I seriously do. I don't think it's there. And I think we'd be much better off if we actually had an honest conversation with the wider public and said, you need to help us because actually our mission is actually about other things and we need to actually get on with that if we're to be the public, if we're to be of the public benefit we think we can be in our mission and ministry. I'd like to end with three prayers that'll be familiar to you. God, our Redeemer and Sustainer, we pray for survivors of violence, abuse and neglect. Give your power to the powerless, your fullness to the empty of spirit. Heal their wounds, free them from fear, and restore them to true health. Grant this through Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Saviour, who is alive and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Judge of all the earth, God of justice, we bring before you all who abuse others. Turn the hearts of the violent from the way of evil. Fill them with a the hatred of the damage that they do. So bringing them to true repentance and amendment of their lives. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Most gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, and in all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purge it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where anything is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen and confirm it. Where it is in want, furnish it. Where it is divided, heal it and unite it in your love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.